Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 40, we read, Now a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him, and saying to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. As soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And he strictly warned him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way. Show yourself to the priest. And offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. However, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in deserted places. And they came to him from every direction. Mark's attention turns to the healing or the cleansing of a man with leprosy. The story begins with tears in verse 40, and it continues with a touch in verse 41. And the story will end with a testimony in verses 43 through 45. In verse 40, read again, it says, Now a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him, saying to him, If you're willing... You can make me clean. In almost an identical passage, Dr. Luke provides almost the identical information except with this one telling insight that I think a physician would want to bring out. In Luke chapter 5, verse 12, it says, And it happened when he was in a certain city, that certain city happened to be Capernaum, that behold, a man who was pleris, lepros. Those two words mean Full of leprosy. It's an advanced condition. He notes that he is terminal, fatal. We have every reason to believe that this man was covered with the dreadful disease from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. The American Leprosy Mission reports. Leprosy, also known as Hansen's disease, is still a cruel reality in developing countries. This ancient disease is still a major world health problem. Every two minutes, someone is diagnosed with leprosy. 141 countries reported leprosy in 2009. Nearly 250,000 new cases are diagnosed every year, and many go undetected. Approximately 10% of these new cases are children. Three to four million people have disabilities as a result of leprosy. Sixteen countries in Africa, Asia, South America account for 93% of all new cases detected in 2009. It's caused by a bacteria. The bacteria enters the surface of the skin. It attacks the nerve endings. It destroys the body's ability to feel pain and, and injury. And without feeling pain, people injure themselves and the injuries can become infected, resulting in tissue loss. Fingers and toes shorten and deform as the cartilage in the body becomes absorbed into the body. 
Repeated injury and infection of numb areas in the fingers or toes can cause the bones to shorten. The tissues around them shrink, making them short. Early signs include on the skin a darkness or a redness. Sometimes the skin is darker. Sometimes it's lighter. The spots then can become numb. And they experience hair loss. Often they appear on arms or hands and they can become numb. Small muscles are paralyzed, leading to the curling of fingers and thumbs. When leprosy attacks nerves in the legs, it interrupts the nervous system's communication to the feet and the toes. The feet can become damaged. A person can step off a curb. They twist their ankle and unknowingly cartilage and flesh and nerves pound on one another. If facial nerves are affected, a person loses the blind, the blinking reflex of the eye. And when the eye can no longer blink, it begins to dry out. There's ulceration and blindness. Bacteria enters the mucus lining of the nose, and it can sometimes lead to internal damage, scarring, which causes literally the nose on the surface of a person's face to collapse. Untreated leprosy can cause Deformity, crippling, blindness. No other disease, according to EWG Masterman, reduces a human being for so many years to such a hideous wreck. Josephus in the first century writes, lepers are treated as if they are, in effect, already dead. We're not told the leper's name. We're given no history. We're not told if he has a wife. We're not told if he has a family. We're not told if he has any children. We're not told if he finds himself in a leper's colony. By the way, in ancient Israel, if a man had a blemish or a spot over a period of time, if there was a suspicious spot, a white patch, the Levitical law required them to present themselves to the priest. In the ancient days, the priest was not simply a priest. He was also a public health official. And so it began with discoloration. The white spot grew nodules. The nodules grow. They erupt a pus-like substance. The law required that the man be quarantined for two weeks, 14 days. It was at this time that the priest would make a determination if the man was infected. And if the news was, you have leprosy. The priest's hands were the last clean hands that would ever be touched by that man. Typically. Can you imagine? He does what the law requires. He goes to the priest. The priest basically says, you have leprosy. You'll never, ever survive this. Can you imagine the man saying, what, what about my wife? I need to go home. What about my children? What about my grandchildren? I can't just pretend like I don't have them. I, I have to see them one more time. I have to touch them at least one more time. As the disease progressed, the average lifespan of a person diagnosed with leprosy has been calculated to be nine years. And so for, for nine years, they would follow from a distance. 
They would see their mother, their father, their brother, their sister, their children. They would grow and the average life would be sent in a leper's colony. If loved ones did approach, they would only come within about a hundred feet. They would leave food and notes and messages. And as the disease progressed, the body would be covered with sores and ulceration and blood and damaged feet and hands and they would emit a foul stench so profound and so severe. You can literally taste it in your mouth. Police officers know about this who have come across dead bodies. Sometimes the carcass is so overwhelming that you can literally taste the stench in your mouth. That's exactly how it would have been with a leper. You were absolutely forbidden to sit or rest on a rock where public people traveled. You couldn't drink at a fountain. If, if, the, if this was a public stream, you couldn't go and even get water. The voice would become raspy and harsh. You were isolated. You were exiled. You were despised. And then all of a sudden you get a picture of misery. You might even think about your own miserable circumstance as you pray and you cry out and you think about your wife, you think about your husband, you think about your family, you think about your job and you think about all of those things that you've come to rely on. The man heard about Jesus. According to Luke's gospel, chapter five, he saw him. He came to him. He implored him. He knelt to him. The tax collector, Matthew, gives us additional information that he found Jesus on the overlook that we call the Mount of Beatitudes. In Matthew, chapter five, Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount in chapter six and chapter seven. And beginning in chapter eight, he's making his way down the mountain. And this man sees him and he flings his Decaying body in front of him. Mark says that he knelt down. Luke says that he covered his face. Matthew says he worshipped him. And there was no known cure for leprosy. It meant permanent exclusion. Permanent isolation. No wonder it was used as a type and a picture of, of sin in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Just like sin, its source seems invisible. It starts as a blotch. There is just a slight discoloration. It soon infects its host. The Bible teaches that that's exactly what sin does. It infects us and then it consumes us. If leprosy is a picture of sin, then this miracle is a Powerful statement of God's mercy, of Christ's compassion. You see, the power of Jesus to deliver from sin is spectacular. Sin, like leprosy, is insidious and slow and destructive and it brings ultimate ruin. As a matter of fact, in the, in the next chapter, chapter 2, verse 17, later, we're going to find Jesus saying, when Jesus heard it, he said to him, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Sin has two opposite extremes that we sometimes fall into. 
The first extreme is that it isn't as bad as you might think. After all, it isn't like I've killed somebody. And then there's the opposite extreme where you have, in fact, killed somebody. That your wickedness and your sin is so profound, it is so clear, it is so dramatic, it is so abrupt that you live your life with the understanding that because you've lived your life the way that you've lived it, there's no hope for you, there's no forgiveness for you, there's no redemption for you. And both of those extremes are false. Do you realize that that's what the Bible teaches? That sin can be forgiven. That you can experience wholeness and wellness and reconciliation to the Father in Christ. In 1982, the ABC Evening News had this report of an unusual work of modern art. It was a chair. And affixed to the chair was a shotgun. And it was to be viewed by sitting in the chair and staring directly down the gun barrel. Except for one thing. This so-called work of art was loaded. And it was set to fire at an undetermined time within the next 100 years. I don't know what's more amazing that people lined up literally for blocks to sit in the chair and watch down the gun barrel. Hoping that that. As they sat across it at point blank range, they were gambling that the fatal blast wouldn't happen during the minute that they spent in the chair. Yes, it was foolhardy that people who would never dream of sitting in such a chair sit down across from sin, hoping that in their case, the gun won't go off. What can we learn so far? Let's just pause just for a moment and see if we can't glean something that's important for each one of us. What can we learn so far? I think it's safe to say that the man with leprosy doesn't underestimate the severity of his problem. I'm going to ask you a question. Do you think it's safe to say that this man is serious about his condition? Would you even characterize it as being desperate? You think that's safe to say? I think so, too. And look what else it says. Imploring, beseeching, begging in verse 40. The man is worshipful, reverent. Look what it says. Kneeling down. There's humility in verse 40. The man is humble and submissive. He says, if you are willing. He doesn't say, you can't do this. He seems to suggest, no, you can do it. The issue isn't whether or not you can the issue is whether or not you will. But he does believe. You can. The man admits his need. You can make me clean. The man is specific. He doesn't say, Hey, Jesus, I'm in trouble. Could you alleviate my misery? Could you... Make part of the suffering go away. How about the ear that's gone? How about the nose that's collapsed? How about the thumb that has been smashed? How about the toes that are completely gone? How about making my life manageable? But he doesn't. I think we can even describe his prayer as 
personal. Make me clean. By the way, in the original language, it's five Greek words. It's not a long prayer. It's a short prayer. The reason why I bring this up is I would ask you that question. Would you say that that's a description of your prayers? Do you come to him desperate, in sincerity, with an impossible, incurable condition? Would you describe your prayers as desperate, as reverent, as humble, as believing, as confessing, as specific, as personal? Because already we begin to learn something from a man who's at the end of his rope. Heal a leper? That's just not possible. By the way, in the history of the universe, I can only think of a few instances where lepers had ever been cleansed. Miriam, the sister of Moses, for mocking Moses' choice of a spouse, was afflicted with leprosy. And God, in his grace and his mercy, heard the prayers of Moses and she was immediately relieved of the condition. Naaman, the Syrian, he wasn't even a Jew. A Syrian general comes down and is offered hope because of a Jewish prophet. The prophet says, dip in the river Jordan. And the Syrian general mocked him because of the pitiful excuse for a creek that it was. But out of desperation, he decides to do what the prophet asks And he dips his corrupt body in the waters of the Jordan and he comes out clean. Not likely to happen again. Heal a leper. Save a sinner. Look at verse 41. Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. In that one little verse, I want you to note three things. The first thing is compassion. The second thing is the touch. The third thing is the word. I'm going to suggest to you that almost every miracle begins with compassion And it continues with a touch. And it ends with a promise. Remember that the misery of the leper is going to be eclipsed by the mercy of the Lord. And for those of you who saw the images on the screen and you thought, that's disgusting. There was a reason why I had to bring this up. Is because I want you to know that your miserable circumstance will never be exceeded by the mercy of God. The thing that you're crying out for, the thing that you think that you need, the man is prostrate before the great physician and Jesus is motivated by compassion. And you've got to understand something. If you've ever wanted to know the truth about God, the way that God thinks, the way that God acts, the way that God feels, the way that God evaluates things, read the Gospel of John. Read the little epistle of 1 John. If you've ever wanted to know what God is really, really like, 
then listen to everything that Jesus says. And listen to everything that Jesus does. Because in Jesus' statement, you're going to understand something. That that's the heart of God. That that's the will of God. That that's the circumstances that God himself desires. There are some manuscripts that give a variant reading with a great deal of interest. One of the variant readings is that he was not so much moved with compassion. One, several actually say moved with anger. And if that's the case, Jesus is angered, not by the leper, and not by the social construct, and not by the deprivation and isolation. He is angered by the horrors that sin create when we disobey God. And since the disease was so advanced, it had probably been years since anyone had touched him. And if you look carefully at the word touched, it's very interesting. Because it's way more than I am willing be healed. I don't I don't see Jesus holding his nose and giving a sort of awkward touch. Henry Ward Beecher wrote, compassion will cure more sins than condemnation. But let me tell you something. Condemnation is easy. Self-blame is easy. Criticism, blame, self-blame, condemnation. It's easy to generate disgust and it's easy to generate prejudice. And it's easy to just simply write the person off. Anyone can criticize. In James, we read in James chapter five, verse 11, the Lord is full of compassion and the Lord is full of mercy. Paul tells the Christians in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter four, verse 32, you be kind to one another. Tender hearted. Forgiving one another. One variant reading is be kind and compassionate to one another. I'm pretty certain that the leper was surrounded by people who loathed him and feared him. Can you imagine as Jesus comes down the hill and they see his snow white countenance and it parts like the Red Sea? When Jesus touches him, the word means way more. It means to grip. It means to hold on for dear life. When I was preparing the study, I thought, how can I communicate to you what this grip must have been like? Because when Jesus says, I am, and he touched him, I'm going to give you a different scenario. Almost 10 years ago, I was in the Amazon basin with Raul Reese. We were doing a pastor's conference, and for whatever reason that I don't, quite understand we went hunting for alligators cocodrilos crocodiles in the middle of the night we're in the amazon basin and we're over the top of the cliff and one of the guys says to me look whatever you do keep your torch your your flashlight because 
Keep it near your feet. He goes, there are dangerous cliffs all around. And so I'm watching each step that I take. And for a brief moment, I hear something in the bushes and I turn the light and I continue to walk. And the next thing I realize, I'm falling off the cliff. In my much younger and agile body, I twisted and caught the branch and held on. And I had a very simple prayer. Ayúdame! That's Spanish for help me. It's pretty short. And as I'm hanging on the edge of the cliff, one of the pastors from, from Colombia came and he literally prostrated himself on the ground and he stretched out his hands and he gripped me with all of his might. Now, this would have been the most inappropriate time to put a tic-tac in my mouth and go, you know, I'm going to save you, but your breath easy stinks. But there was one guy who thought he would have some fun with me. He had caught in one of the crocodiles and he goes, Bes el cocodrilo. That means kiss the crocodile. And I did. I wish I could say to you that that was the most unattractive thing I've ever kissed, but I would be telling you the truth. You'd be surprised what you will do when you are motivated. And he grabs me as if my life depended upon it, because it did. I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus grabbed him as if his life depended upon it. Compassion, touch, speech. Jesus communicates his desire, ministry. You see, you might think, I don't have supernatural abilities to heal anyone, but guess what? God, by his Holy Spirit, has given you the ability to exercise compassion and touch and communicate the promises of God. Warren and David Wearsby in their book, Making Sense of Ministry, have this little statement. I keep it next to my desk to constantly remind me the foundation of ministry is character. The nature of ministry is service. The motive for ministry is love. The measure of ministry is sacrifice. The authority of ministry is submission. The purpose of ministry is the glory of God. The tools of ministry are the word of God and prayer. The privilege of ministry is growth. The power of the ministry is the Holy Spirit. And the model for ministry is the Lord Jesus Christ. Did it ever occur to you that you can do exactly what he did? Exercise compassion. You have the ability. You can find ways to include rather than exclude. You can find ways to include rather than isolate. In verse 42, Jesus says the promise. And as soon as it says in verse 42, he had spoken immediately. The leprosy left him and he was cleansed. You know, when I was looking at that passage, I asked myself, why doesn't the Bible say, and he was healed? 
why does it use the more dramatic and profound word cleansed? And by the way, when the Bible talks about healing of lepers in the New Testament, they're never simply healed. They're cleansed. Now, all of a sudden, we begin to see the picture of sin and the sinner. Because when Jesus comes into your life, he doesn't just simply heal you and he just doesn't simply restore you into a right relationship with God. He takes the profundity of the wickedness that was your life and your rebellion and your sin and he cleanses you. And look what it says in verse 43. And he strictly warned him and sent him away at once. By the way, the expression strictly warned sounds severe. And it's even more severe in the original language. Imbrene samenos. It is a classical Greek word which described the annoyance, the snorting of an animal that was upset. The NIV translates this, and Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. And you might be wondering... Why? Why the severity? Why almost the rebuke? We're about to find out in verse 44. He says to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. Now, this is interesting. When Jesus says, tell everyone, we typically tell no one. When Jesus says, don't tell anyone. We have this awkward thing that we go through. There's something about a rule that makes us want to break that rule. There's something about a sign that says, don't step on the grass, that makes you so much want to step on that grass. Jesus gives the reason in verse 44. See that you say nothing to anyone. Listen carefully. But go your way. Show yourself to the priest. Offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Jesus insists that the former leper present himself to the priest. The text tells us as a testimony to them. You've got to understand that there is a reason and a rhyme even behind this restoration. The man needed to observe the law and the man needed to provide a testimony to the priest and the people. The man's cleansing needed to be acknowledged by the priest in order to allow him back into fellowship. Remember what I said to you, the priest made the determination and it was the priest's responsibility to restore him back into fellowship. But you know what? Why doesn't he? Why doesn't he? Why is this man reluctant to obey the Lord? Is it possible that the first time he went to the priest, it was the priest who pronounced the judgment and that meant no more contact with your wife, no more contact with your children, no more contact? Is it possible that there was a flinch and a fear? What if I go back? What if the healing isn't real? What if it comes back? What if a blotch automatically suddenly appears out of nowhere and I'm stuck in the same miserable life that I used to live? 
the procedure for cleansing is outlined in Leviticus chapter 14. And by the way, in Leviticus chapter 13, we get a picture of the characteristics of sin. And I do want to encourage you, you must, if you have the time, I would encourage you to figure out a time to read chapter 13 and chapter 14. I don't have time. But in chapter 13, we get this picture of the characteristics of sin. The the disease of leprosy goes below the surface of the skin in verse 3. It spreads in verse 7. It defiles in verses 44 through 46. It isolates in verse 46. And when you are engaged in the leprosy, everything that your body touch has as only one remedy, and that is the fire. Your clothes go in the fire. Your personal effects go into the fire. If you have a home, you burn it. All garments found defiled by leprosy were immediately burned. People laugh at sin. They excuse sin. They try to explain it away. But the Bible doesn't think it's funny. The Bible doesn't think it's a joke. In chapter 14, the priests has to go to the leper. Remember, the leper is outside the camp. The leper can't get help. If the leper is going to get help, it has to come from the priest. And so in chapter 14, the priest goes to the leper and it becomes a type and a picture of Jesus leaving the camp. Job said, how can I get to heaven? How can I have a conversation with God? How can I experience God? How can I know what it's like to know him and love him and be loved by him? The only way that you're ever going to have a right relationship with God is God himself is going to have to leave heaven and he's going to have to find you. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus leaves heaven and he comes to the earth and he sees your affliction. Not for the purpose of condemning you. But for the purpose of showing mercy and a promise And by the way, the ceremony is a picture of the work of Jesus. If you read chapter 14 carefully, the priest would take one of two birds. There would be two birds and he would place one bird in an earthen vessel. Why? Birds don't belong in an earthen vessel. Birds were meant to fly. In my backyard, we have it's filled with birds. Two prairie doves came into our barbecue grill when the cover was on during the winter and they built a nest in the barbecue grill. My wife won't barbecue because she doesn't want to disturb the birds. Birds weren't created to live in clay jars. And God was never meant to be in a human body, but he becomes a human being for you. The Bible says that the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us and the priest would take the bird in the jar and he would kill the bird. And then he would take the living bird. And then he would take the dead bird and he would take the blood from the dead bird and he would paste it on the wings of the living bird and he would toss the bird into heaven. You don't see the imagery. You don't see the story. The bird was killed over running water, which becomes a type and a picture of the cleansing of the Holy Spirit. 
It becomes a picture of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus died for our sins. He took the blood in a spiritual sense back to heaven so that we can be cleansed from sin. And finally, the priest would sprinkle the blood on the leper because the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no remission for sin. And the priest, according to Leviticus chapter 14, would take the blood And he would anoint the leper's ear and the leper's thumb and the leper's toe. It becomes a picture of cleansing from the filthiness of of the flesh. We're saved. We're saved. But we're saved for a reason. We're saved so that we can hear the word of God and so that we can walk in the word of God. As a matter of fact... The sin offering, the the, the leper would be ordered to go back to the tabernacle or the temple. He would offer a trespass offering. He would offer a sin offering. He would offer a burnt offering. And the sin offering took care of the defilement. The burnt offering represented his renewed dedication to the Lord. So why a trespass offering? Because while he lived in a state of defilement, he was unable to serve the Lord, which was his responsibility. You see, every moment of every day that you lived apart from Christ and apart from his mercy was a day that belonged to God. Your years of rebellion and disobedience weren't just simply yours. They have always belonged to God. And so Jesus comes and he is the burnt offering and he is the sin offering and he is the trespass offering. He makes a provision for everything that you wasted and everything that you lost. Every lost sinner isn't simply lost, but they're robbing God of the honor that's due God. And the debt continues to grow and the debt continues to increase. And so the priest would take the blood and apply it to the right ear. He would take the blood and apply it to the thumb. He would take the blood and he would apply it to the toe. And I'm going to suggest something to you. You know how many times this happened in the Old Testament? Never. Why would God devote two whole chapters to something that never happened? Because it would happen. A man isolated, excluded, would be be supernaturally healed as a testimony to the priest. It was supposed to bring a point to the, the Levitical law and to the priest and to the religious establishment. When the priest took the blood, can you imagine the leper going, see this ear? Just two days ago, there wasn't even an ear there. Do you see this thumb? It's a brand new thumb. You see these toes? I have toes and a new nose. He was expected to listen to God's word. He was expected to work for God's glory. He was expected to walk in God's ways. When the priest would put the oil on the blood, symbolizing the power of the Spirit of God for doing God's will, the blood could not be put on the oil. The oil had to be put on the blood. 
Because where the blood has been applied, the Spirit of God can work. And by the way, if you read Leviticus chapter 8, verse 22, you're going to see a similar ceremony where the priest, his ear and his thumb and his toe are anointed. And you know what the priest would do with the rest of the oil? He would drench it on top of the person and they would take the rest of the oil and they would pour it over the top of the leper's head. Do you know why this is important? Because according to Leviticus chapter 14, God's will was that the leper would be treated like a priest. The chapter is a picture of what Jesus does. He goes outside of the camp to find us. He dies and he rises from the dead to save us. He applies blood and oil so we can experience friendship and fellowship. And I want you to remember the words of the leper. If you're willing, you can cleanse me. The answer, I've always been willing. I wrote the answer a thousand years earlier. In chapter 13 of Leviticus, in chapter 14 of Leviticus. I've always wanted to help. I've always wanted to cleanse. I've always wanted to heal. Leviticus chapter 14 was God's answer to the question. But here's another question, and that is, could the priest save him and could the law save him? If the leper says, I'm going to read the Bible every day and I'm going to pray every day and I'm going to be a good person for the rest of my life, would that have cleansed his leprosy? That's exactly right. If he's going to be healed, if he's going to be whole, it's going to take Jesus to do it. And there is no religion and there is no church and there is no prayer and there is no Bible that can save you apart from what the Bible declares concerning the promise of God. That if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you, that if you will allow Jesus into your life, he will come into your life. The misery of the man and the miracle of the man was prophesied by the ministry of the law. And look what it says in verse 45. However, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city. He was outside in deserted places. They came to him from every direction. The man's disobedience proved harmful to the ministry of Jesus. Jesus didn't save you and cleanse you so that your ministry could prove harmful. You know, we sometimes think that Jesus doesn't really mean what he says or say what he means. There's a reason why Jesus had the prohibition, because he wanted the testimony to take place so that people would understand that he's the Messiah. You see, the truth is his healing and cleansing wasn't the only thing that was important. It was the glory of God and it was the ministry of Jesus. The expression proclaim it freely is the same word karudza, which we get for preach. Spread the matter is a word that means to spread the news. The cleansed leper turned into a powerful publicist, but it was for unwelcome publicity. There's a reason there. Let me help you understand something. 
There's a reason why Jesus has said to you, I love you and I'm willing to save you. But there's some things I want you to do. I want you to love me and I want you to honor me and I want you to obey me. But you don't understand how miserable I am. You don't understand how miserable I am in my marriage. You don't understand how miserable I am in my job. You don't understand how miserable I am in my ministry. God's mercy is far more powerful than your misery. There's a reason why the Lord wants you to stay with your husband. There's a reason why the Lord wants you to stay with your wife. There's a reason why God wants you not to provoke your children. There's a reason why he's asked you not to rob or or steal. There's a reason why he's asking you to do what he's asking you to do. Does your disobedience make Jesus's ministry any more real? No, your disobedience will not make the sacrifice of Christ go away. But it will hinder it. It will limit it. In Newsweek, there was a poll. Percentage of Americans who believe in miracles, 84%. Percentage of Americans who believe in the reality of the miracles described in the Bible, 79%. Percentage who believe in personal experiences with miracles, 48%. People who know people who have had a miracle, 63%. Percentage of those who prayed for a miracle, 67%. Percentage of those who believe that God or through the saints can cure or heal people who have been given no chance to survive by medical doctors, 77%. You know what the study didn't ask? The study never asked, why do you suppose Jesus did miracles? I would be interested to know your answer. Why does Jesus do miracles? Compassion? I think so. Credentials? I think so. To convey his power? I think so. But Jesus is way more concerned about the eternal things than the temporal things. And if Jesus can cleanse leprosy, here's the point that he's making. He can cleanse you internally forever. Your misery will never exceed Christ's mercy. Your misery will never exceed Christ's mercy. Your condition and condemnation will never be greater than his compassion. Let me ask you a question. Are you a sinner? Do you want forgiveness? Do you believe that Jesus loves you? Do you believe that he died on the cross for your sin? Do you believe he's willing to forgive you? If you're willing to confess your sin and receive forgiveness and hope and salvation, it's available to you. Wholeness. Wellness. Would you like to participate in a miracle? Exercise compassion. Touch. Rather than turn away. And tell people the truth. That God's promises are real. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person here. Lord, I pray that 
that, Lord, we would remember that in direct proportion to our miserable circumstances, there is a mercy that will begin to fill and then overflow. Lord, I suspect that there are people who don't want to obey you right now. And they think it doesn't matter. Oh, you're God. You'll get over it. But Lord, we pray that we wouldn't hinder your ministry anymore. That Lord, we would be men and women who love you and serve you. Lord, we pray that we would be men and women who understandably, we understand that most people on the planet Earth will never read the book of Leviticus. (laughs) And that for most people, our lives become the only book that most of the world will ever read. Lord, we pray that we could honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.